All right, Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7, we'll be reading the first three verses in just a moment. Um, Something we're going to learn from this text tonight is that from God's perspective, there is something worse even than disobedience. There's something worse than flagrantly disobeying God. Something worse than committing adultery. Worse than murder. Worse than hurting other people and harboring bitterness and hatred. There's something worse than disobedience. What is that? Well, we're going to discover that together. My title tonight that I think eventually you will be able to see wraps up the meaning of verses 1 through 15 of Jeremiah 7. My title is this, Observance Without Obedience. Observance Without Obedience. Now, I've grown up in church, and I've been coming to church long enough to know that different people have very specific routines when they come in, right? Now, now some of you, you go straight to the K-Cafe, even though it's been closed for like eight minutes because you show up after service has started, you go straight to the K-Cafe, you try to get your coffee in before you show up to worship. Some of you go straight to the restroom, and maybe that's just what you have to do. That's okay. No judgment. Um, Some of you go, go talk to the same one or two people that you always talk to before church, your close friends. And then um, this is my favorite one, and it's really, really common. I don't know if people know that they do it, but there are the people that just come straight in and they sit down and they, sometimes they fold their arms, sometimes they don't, but they do the look around. They look over here and then they look over there and then they're done. That's it. That's the, that's the thing they do. It's like they have this mental cue that says, I'm ready to start church. I, I, I know who's on this side. I know who showed up on this side, and I'm ready to go. And a lot of you do that, by the way. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just interesting. But we have routines when we come to church, don't we? We have routines. And, and we, it may be awkward for us if one of those routines gets interrupted. Like if there's no bulletins or if the front door was locked or that one person that you talked to isn't here. And then you're like, I don't know what to do. Or if there's a line at the bathroom. But imagine how you would feel if this happened. You show up to Fellowship Baptist Church Sunday morning. And as you're getting ready to walk in the front entrance, there's someone there that you've never seen before. You don't recognize them. You don't know who they are. They're standing there. And they're shouting at people, telling them that they're wasting their time by coming to church. Like some of you would be really offended. That this person is yelling at you saying that you're a hypocrite. And that you're wasting your time by going and hearing somebody teach the Bible. And if you come in and and, and sing these songs that it's pointless. Now some of you would be very upset if that happened be really upset. And you'd all maybe have all kinds of guesses as to what kind of person that would be. Maybe you'd think, well, they're really progressive or they're an atheist or they're secular. Well, that happens in the Old Testament. 
And the person that does this not at a church, but at the temple gates, shouting at people, telling them they're wasting their time by coming to the temple is none other than the prophet Jeremiah. In fact, this is his first public sermon. And we go over to chapter 26 and we realize this is where his problems start. He becomes very unpopular very quickly. And once we read the text, we'll get an idea as to why that is. Jeremiah is standing outside the temple, not welcoming people. He's not shaking hands. (laughs) He's not giving them a temple bulletin. He's warning them declaring in no uncertain terms that these people are hurting themselves by coming into God's house. So if you've found your place by now, look at the first three verses. I don't have the verses on the screen. I want you to uh, look down at your Bibles, and we're going to look at the first uh, 15 verses. I want you to just keep your eyes on the whole text uh, tonight. But we're just going to start with verses 1 to 3. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all ye of Judah, that enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings. Jeremiah is outside the temple telling people God does not want their worship. Now we know that the temple was really important for God's people. This is where he met his people. This is where his presence was. Unfortunately, many of the leaders in uh, Israel had denigrated God's commands. They had forgotten his law, forgotten all the things they were supposed to do. They started worshiping idols. And because of that, most of the tribes of Israel were taken into captivity through Assyria, and that was really the judgment of God. They lost their land, they lost their identity as God's people, and they were scattered all over the Assyrian Empire. But there were two tribes that stayed in the land. That was Judah and Benjamin. They were known as the southern kingdom. These were the people that had some good kings, like Hezekiah, Josiah, for instance. They also had Jerusalem, which meant they had the temple. And under Josiah, which was before Jeremiah's entrance here in his first public sermon, before that happened, Josiah, as the king, led this huge revival for Judah where they started back in worshiping at the temple like they were always supposed to do. In other words, he brought back the law. You could say people were going to church again, but really they were going to the temple again like God had told them to. So you would think this is a really, really good thing. But after this revival happens under Josiah, over time, though people still keep coming back to the temple, God is not happy. Now, we like full days, right? We, we like days where we're going over the attendance at staff meeting, and 425 is better than 390, right? We want people here. We want them to be a church. We want people to worship God. And in this case, God's house is full, but God's heart is not. 
everybody's coming to the temple, but that does not make God pleased. In fact, it just makes him angry. So Jeremiah is standing, welcoming them as it were, but he's welcoming them to the temple with this warning. And here's the warning in the first three verses, reform or else. Reform or else. Again, Jeremiah, after preaching this uh, message, completely lost his popularity. He's telling them here to hear the word of the Lord. This is not Jeremiah's word. This is why the message was so controversial. This isn't something Jeremiah noticed on his own alone. This was a message that had to come from God because only God knew their hearts. And Jeremiah is saying, when he gets to verse 4, if you amend your ways, if you change, God will allow you to stay in the land. Dwell in this place. Now, the, under the Old Covenant, there, the Old Covenant was more national than personal. And here's uh, kind of it in a nutshell. There were unconditional promises in the Old Covenant, things that God was going to do no matter what, like send the Messiah. Right? It doesn't matter how much God's people messed things up, he was definitely going to send the Messiah, Abraham's seed. But there were other things in the Covenant that were conditional. And it meant that as a nation, Israel could only have certain things if they, together, obeyed God's law. And one of those conditional parts of the Old Covenant was the land. They weren't always promised to be able to live there peacefully. Now, they could always, eternally, live there peacefully if they obeyed God's law. Deuteronomy 28 and 29 has these blessings and cursings. And one of the cursings is that they would be attacked and scattered by other nations, pagan tribes and peoples, if they did not obey God. And so God is saying here that that there is a question as to whether or not they will stay in the land. Now, this is not something these people seem to be worried about. Again, they're the southern kingdom. They're the, they're the southern, they're, they're, the, they're the good Jews, right? They are the people that are faithful to God. They're the people that have had good kings. They're the people that have tried to obey God's law. And more than that, they have the temple. So they think, we're okay. God says, they're not okay. If you want to stay in the land, you have to amend your ways. If you amend your ways, then you'll dwell in this place. So why did they need to change their ways? What do they need to do differently? These people coming to the temple, these people that seem to be being faithful to God's law on the outside, what do they need to do differently to stay in the land? Well, here's the problem. In verses 4 to 11, Jeremiah explains that their main problem was a misplaced confidence. A misplaced confidence. And their misplaced confidence was in God's temple. Verse 4. Jeremiah says, Trust ye not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. All right, verse 4 has this really in-depth theology of the temple. Here was their theology of the temple. You ready for this? As they're coming, here's what they're saying to themselves. It's almost like a chant. We're at the temple of the Lord. Now you think, I I don't know what the big deal is. That sounds good, right? Like, was this God's temple, yes or no? Yes. Is this, in fact, the temple of the Lord? 
that they're going to as Jeremiah is screaming at them. Yes. And, but Jeremiah says, you're trusting in lying words. Well, if it's God's temple, and their mantra as a people, the, the mantra of the people in Jerusalem who see themselves as faithful to God, it has become the temple of the Lord. What exactly is the problem? Verse 5. You're saying it's the temple of the Lord, but he says in verse 5, for if ye thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if ye thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, verse 6, if ye oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt, then will I cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. You see, their lie was half right. This was the Lord's temple. But just because this was the Lord's temple does not mean that whatever else these people did was okay. Their mindset is, because we're in Jerusalem, because we have the temple, because we have this place where God meets his people, because we have access to this then all of these other commands that God has given us in the law don't matter anymore. Why don't they matter? The temple of the Lord. (laughs) This is God's temple. I'm going to go here. I'm going to bring a sacrifice. I'm going to read a psalm. I'm going to hear some teaching from the law. The temple of the Lord. Here's their temple theology. Here's why these words, which sound so good as we read the Bible, here's why these words were actually lying words. They thought because they were obedient in all the ceremonies of the temple that it then made uh, irrelevant all the ways they had been disobeying God in all the other areas of their lives. They thought if they obeyed, they did everything right, they followed all the rules for the temple ceremonies, what they did outside of the temple didn't matter to God. We did the incense, right? My lamb doesn't have any spots on it. We showed up on time. That's saying something, right? If you have a lot of kids. So yeah, I've, been, I've, been, I've made some mistakes. I've been doing some problems, but I'm at the temple. Everything's going to be okay. They thought, God was so pleased with how they acted in the temple that what they did outside of the temple the rest of the time did not matter. What kind of disobedience was going on here? Oppressing foreigners? That is taking advantage of other people who would have been vulnerable and didn't have anything, and didn't have any resources, didn't have any family? Non-Jews? Neglecting widows and orphans? This could have been neighbors or family members. That it was their responsibility as God's people to financially support, house, and feed, and they weren't doing it. Hey, have you taken care of your mother-in-law? Oh, no, it's, it's okay. Jedediah, well, why? Why is that okay, Benjamin? Well, I go to the temple. Do you see it? God's, God's okay with me. He's, he's happy with me. I can do these things because after all, I go to the temple. Condoning murder? These people were murdering people 
and covering up murder during the week, and then they would show up to the temple. Idolatry, they had idols in their homes. It's possible, and we get some insight on this from Ezekiel, it's possible that some of them were actually bringing their idolatrous practices into the temple itself which is a very mixed heart, right? It's like, I'm going to worship Yahweh, but just in case he's not the only God, I'm going to have some commitments to all these other idols. And an idol is anything that someone dedicates themselves to to get feelings of security and peace. And so they were doing that, even though they were going to the temple. They were stealing. They were committing adultery. All these people around Jerusalem, all these people in Judah, just blatantly disregarding God's moral law. But they thought they had such a spiritual advantage because they had the temple. They thought having the temple gave them so many credit points with God that God didn't care how they acted outside of it. And so they have this magical formula, right? That you could apply to any situation, to any sin, if you wanted to feel better about it. And here's the magic formula. The temple of the Lord. And herein lies their misplaced confidence. And for this, uh, Jeremiah calls this the great lie. He refers to it as a lie again in verse number 8. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense unto Baal, and walk after other gods whom you know not, and come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. God is really offended by this. He's not just offended, he's angry about it. The temple had God's name on it. Now this, they thought, was working to their advantage. God's going to, I'm going to compensate for all these other things I'm doing, all these other secret sins I have, all these things that I'm involved with that I know are evil, I know they're wrong, but you see, God's name is on this temple, so I'm okay. And God is saying, no, you don't understand. This is not okay precisely because my name is on this temple. In other words, I own it. The people in it that worship in it are supposed to represent me and, and my values, God is saying, and my priorities, and you're not. God's name was on the temple. That is why they are in so much danger for how they are abusing it. Is this house, verse 11, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your own eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. They took a lot of pride in the thought that God saw what they were doing in the temple. And God is saying, I see you outside of the temple as well. I know who you are when you, when you leave. I know what you've been doing before you came, that you think you can just cover it up. I see it. I'm God. You know the one thing worse than disobedience to God? The one thing worse than disobeying God is disobeying him and thinking he doesn't care about that disobedience because you obey him in other areas of life. God's not just angry because they're lying and stealing and killing. Yeah, I said killing. These are, they're killing people and God's not just angry. I mean, if you, if you know someone who murders somebody, 
you'd be a little bit upset at them about it, but God's actually more angry about the fact that these murderers are trying to find solace in the temple by saying, this is God's temple. I'm okay. Phil Riken says this on Jeremiah 7, it would be bad enough to commit all those sins, but what God's people did was even worse. They violated all God's commandments and then went to worship in God's house as if they had done nothing wrong. So the temple became a robber's den, a cave of thieves. What does that mean? Well, we, we, we're really familiar with how Jesus referenced this in the Gospels, right? When he uh, flips over the tables of the money changers. And when we think about um, a, a den of thieves, a den of robbers, we're uh, thinking about uh, people taking money from other people. And that is the situation that was happening in the Gospels. But that's not exactly what Jeremiah is talking about here. Because when you think about a hideout for robbers, that's really not the place where they steal stuff, right? Uh, word of advice, if one of your teens wants to become a professional pickpocket, you don't go to a cave and, and try to do your work there like you're not going to find anything, right? So what's the den for? Well, that's the place you go and hide out after you've been wreaking havoc on society. You take a temporary break from these moral atrocities you've been committing. Then when you leave the hideout, you go back out and do it again. Like it's the clubs on the mafia movies, right? It's like there's two or three minutes where they're not going to be killing anybody, but then they leave the club. And what do the the mafia people do in the movies? Well, then they, they go kill some more people. That's this idea of a den of thieves. This is where thieves take a break from their wickedness so they can be rejuvenated and refreshed and go out and rip off some more people. And God is saying that's what his people are doing with the temple. That it's just a place where they can take a temporary break from their sin so they have more energy, so they have more rest, and they can go out and do it again. They think their lives are better in the sight of God because they've done this. And God says, no, you are much worse off by coming. That's what the temple had become. A temporary place of refuge before they went out and disobeyed all the rest of God's law. So what's God's solution? God's solution is that they need to remember God's demands and further that they need to know how seriously God takes it. Look at verse 12. But go. Go ye now unto my place which was in Shiloh where I set my name at the first and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these works, saith the Lord, and I spoke unto you, rising up early and speaking, but you heard not. And I called you, but you answered not. Therefore, will I do unto this house, which is called by my name, wherein you trust, and unto the place which I gave to you and to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all of your brethren, even the whole seed of Ephraim. Wow. It's temple time. There's a service getting ready to start, and Jeremiah's saying, no, don't come in here. Why don't you take a long walk to Shiloh? What's there? It's all been destroyed. Right. Right. God's saying, if you think you can pull this one on me, if you think I'm unwilling to take this away from you, 
If you think I'm unwilling to destroy this temple, just go look in Shiloh. I, I've destroyed things before when they've been abused, and I'll do it again. You say, well, that's not very encouraging. No, it's not. If they persist in their sin, it's not encouraging at all. But if we persist in our sin, many of the things that God has to say to us aren't going to be encouraging. This is one of them. This is one of them. So Jerusalem, it turns out, is in just as much danger as their northern neighbor. They thought they were way better off, but God says when you do these kinds of things, you're not better off than your northern neighbor. God doesn't mind destroying the temple. He would destroy the temple. Then he would do it again in AD 70 after Jesus is rejected. Go read Mark 13. God doesn't mind destroying things that have been abused. Even good things. Why? Because they needed to remember that God demands whole obedience in all of life. You see, God's intent here is not for them to give up on the temple. I mean, we could go read read Nehemiah and then um, uh, we, we could read the prophets where God encourages them to go back and build, right? God's not against the temple, but he is against this. He's against using it in the way that they were using it as a means where they thought they could get even with God on all their other sins on all the other ways they were disobeying him. Trying to cover over immoral living with ceremonies and rituals, even good ceremonies and rituals, will be met with God's severity. He doesn't tolerate it. He's not okay with it. Is there a better way, is there a nicer way to say that, David? No. Not if we're going to be honest with the text. So here's the truth of our passage. Here's what it comes down to. Ceremonial observance... Without moral obedience, angers God. Ceremonial observance, without moral obedience, angers God. God's people had disconnected worship from the rest of their daily lives. They wanted justification without sanctification. They wanted something to do once a week or once a month that didn't interfere with all the other ways they wanted to live and their unbridled desires and lusts. And in their minds, the temple was the perfect gift. They could come to the temple as a self-atoning exercise to feel better about all the other ways they were disobeying their God that gave them the temple. As long as they go to the temple of the Lord, They could live however they wanted. They operated on the assumption that if what was done at the temple was good enough and powerful enough and emotional enough, that whatever else they did during the week really didn't matter to God. Ceremonial observance without moral obedience angers God. So what does this have to do with us today? There are some points of dissimilarity, right? Um, I mean, the, the sense of the text cannot be brought over in, in every way. We have land, but we, we don't necessarily live where we live because uh, we obey God. You know, it's not like uh, Kansas, if it's really bad, is going to get taken over by the Babylonians. That's not the system we're in, right? 
The new covenant's a little different than that. But there are some similarities, right? The first similarity should be obvious. Like God's people under the old covenant, God's new covenant people still struggle with sin. We still struggle with disobeying the moral commandments that God has given us. And believing, on, believing in them and even having positions on them doesn't mean we don't fail because we're sinners. Sinners in the process of being redeemed, sinners in the process of being sanctified, sinners on our way to heaven, but we are still sinners on the way. And like God's people in the old covenant, though under different circumstances, we struggle with sin. But there's another similarity. There's another way that I hope you see Jeremiah 7 is going to touch on our lives. And that is that even in the new covenant, we still have rituals. We still have ceremonies. That, that just means something that you, you do. A ritual is just something you do over and over again, right? It's not bad to have a ritual. We have rituals. We assemble together. That's not a one-time thing, right? If you're a church, we gather. It's, a, it's something you do over and over again. So what is it? It's a ritual. It's a ceremony. We're, we're to be under the teaching of the word to learn the apostles' doctrine, Acts 2. Now, that's a ritual. We come back to church to hear preaching. We observe the Lord's Supper, which we're doing in just a few weeks. That's a ritual. There's nothing wrong with calling it a ceremony. It is. That God gave to us, and it's glorious. And you see, because we deal with sin on the one hand, and because we we have all these beautiful, amazing uh, ceremonies that God has given us, I hope you see, friends, this leaves us with a great temptation that we can use these ceremonies and observing them as a cover for moral disobedience. Now you say, David, hold on. You're talking to the wrong crowd. This is Wednesday, and we showed up. Like, shouldn't you be telling people this that don't come to church? Isn't this for that crowd, like the really apathetic people that never show up? Well, no. Jeremiah is not going house to house in Jerusalem. He's not even writing up a declaration for everyone in Jerusalem to hear. This is only for the people who show up. Because this problem can only exist for people that are very faithful to the rituals that, yes, God has called them to be faithful to. This, this text isn't for people in Jeremiah's day who weren't coming to the temple. They're, that's at least one thing that they're not in danger of. It's for the people who show up. It's for you and me. Yeah, we're here on a Wednesday night. Yeah, this is the core group. I get it, but that is precisely why this exact problem is a problem for us. How do I know if I'm doing this? How do I know if I have observance without obedience? If at church, you and your spouse pose as a Christian couple, but at home, Monday through Saturday, you are constantly sinning against each other in words and thoughts, you're just being unchristian to each other the rest of the time, then it's possible you have observance without obedience. You say, well, we came to church together Sunday morning. We even held hands. Great. Were you a jerk to your spouse on Monday? 
Do you have the fruit of the Spirit? Like seven days a week. I'm not talking about perfection here. I'm I'm saying, are we even striving to obey God and fight sin? If you claim to love the truth while you are among your Christian friends, but in your private life, you lie to people, you're deceitful, you're untrustworthy, and you use words to manipulate people and get what you want, then it's possible you have observance without obedience. If you're kind to your circle of friends at church, but ignore those you consider don't belong or people you're just not interested in, then you could have observance without obedience. If you send your kids to camp, but you don't teach them the Bible and you're not giving them a Christian worldview, you're just sending them to camp because that's what all the other church parents do. By the way, send them to camp. That's good. That's a good thing. But if you're not actually teaching them the Bible and you're failing in a very clear area that God has given you a non-delegatable opportunity, then you could have observance but no obedience. If you give generously to the church but you take advantage of others in your business or you cheat on your taxes, you could have observance without obedience. If you come to church and sing songs about grace, but don't remember the last time you spent a significant amount of time in prayer confessing your sins to God, then you may have observance without obedience. If you are consumed with lust daily, but you come to church to make up for it by outwardly feigning holiness and commitment in life, then you have observance, but you have no obedience. If you come to church where you revel in hearing about God's forgiveness, while in your own heart it is stone cold to others whom you have held grudges toward for years, then you have observance, but you don't have obedience. If you come Sunday morning to hear the gospel, but you don't look for opportunities during the week, during the week to share the gospel, you have observance, but you probably don't have obedience. If your connection group members know your name and know everything that's going on in your life, but coworkers don't even know that you're a Christian, then you have observance without obedience. If you outwardly appear to celebrate God's love by coming to a worship service or by serving in a ministry, but you harbor hatred in your heart. By the way, Jesus called that the sin of the heart attitude of murder. And there is a single brother or sister that you don't love, then you have observance, but you don't have obedience. Jeremiah's message to us is this, that our worship in God's house is not an opportunity to make up for a lack of obedience in other areas of life. In fact, the only kind of worship that is pleasing to God is the kind given out of a whole life of obedience. Has church become your den of thieves? Sunday morning or Wednesday, when we have some sort of special service here and you start heading to 310 West Pancake, are you just taking a break from a life that is marked and full of sin? So you can go back out and do it again? Again, I want to be clear, I'm not talking about perfection. Jeremiah is not talking about perfection either. But I am talking about holiness. And if we don't have it, we're not going to see the Lord. You can try to stretch that to mean something other than it clearly means, but it should terrify us when we read that scripture, if we actually read it. 
And it is terrifying. We need to deal with our sin, friends, but that this is not the way to do it. We don't deal with the sin in the rest of our lives by being obedient only in the ceremonies. How do we deal with sin then? Well, we don't make up for a lack of obedience in one area with an abundance of observance in rituals. We're told very clearly how to deal with our sin. That is, that we come to God with it, and we do so based on this promise. Look at 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I'm glad we have people come to church. We have a lot of people that come to church. I'm encouraged by that. I love it when our, when our numbers go up. I'm encouraged by that. And I, that's the only direction I want to see them go in. You should be worried about me if I thought any other way. That's, that's not my heart with bringing you this text tonight. But friends, if we are using church as a cover to do whatever we want and disobey God in all the other areas of our lives, then what we do when we do come to church does not please God. It actually angers him. So the thrust of this text is not stay home from church. No. The meaning of the text is not that you should stop coming or that you should stop doing the ceremonies. If there's sin in your heart, the answer is not, well, I'm not going to go to the Lord's Supper. I, I can't have sin in my heart and go to the Lord's Supper. No! Show up! But confess your sin to God. So if it's possible that, that you've been using observance to hide and to cover disobedience, then that's, that's exactly what we need to do. Confess it to God. That means we're honest with God about our sin, and then we take sides with him against our sin. What is in your life right now that's unconfessed? What's in your life right now that you may be tempted to use outward observance to cover up. That's what God invites you to confess to him. In just a second, we're all going to stand. When we stand, I want you to come pray. I'm going to pray too. I'm going to go to my chair and I'm going to pray. And whatever God brings to your heart, whatever he is revealed that you need to confess to him, just say it. Be honest with him about it and then claim his forgiveness. Let's all stand.